Welcome to the Startup Brewery Podcast, where we discuss all things relating to startups, open and growing breweries from concept to execution. We are pleased to partner with All About Beer to bring you this podcast. You're joining us today for episode 12, Equipment and Infrastructure. I'm Laura Lodge, here with Candice Moon, and we're excited to welcome you to our ongoing podcast journey. As your hosts and founders of Startup Brewery, we both have extensive experience in our areas of specialty. Candice is the craft beer attorney, having worked with more than 500 brewery clients over time. And my background is a mix of distribution, event planning, and craft beer education. You can find more information about us and our contributors, plus a whole bunch of information and resources at startabrewery.com. To begin, we appreciate today's podcast sponsor. Support for this episode comes from Wild Goose Filling, featuring the new generation of their compact professional canning system, Gosling 2.0, with an all-new user interface and integrated touchscreen. Wild Goose's latest Gosling 2.0 canning line builds upon the Wild Goose reputation with patented filling technology that delivers the same consistency as higher-speed Wild Goose systems. Ready to package beer, coffee, kombucha, wine, and anything in between, Gosling 2.0 is the next generation of fully automated canning in one sleek, simple system. To learn more about Gosling 2.0, Wild Goose's latest Fusion 2.0 counter-pressure atmospheric canning system, or other filling solutions for your brewery's unique needs, visit www.wildgoosefilling.com. Episode 12 is continuing our conversation with regard to the decision-making needed to flesh out a compelling business plan. This follows 009, Kitchens Plus Tap Rooms, Brew Pubs, or Production Brewery, Episode 10, Design and Build Strategies, and most recently, Episode 11, What Are You Brewing? with Eric Fowler of White Labs, Nico Tonks of YCH, and Neil Witte of Tapstar, Craft Quality Solutions, and the Cicerone Certification Program. It's interesting to thread all of these topics together, as they all impact each other, and a change to one can shift everything else in the other areas. As we dive into Episode 12, we consider one of the most popular topics of conversation when talking about any brewery brewing equipment. While hearing the same discussion of how to plan the right size system for both startup and expanding breweries over and over throughout the years, I don't know that we ever get past the generalities. So today let's dig down further beyond reinforcing great advice and talk specialty directions and different approaches that people can take with designing and purchasing their equipment. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Morning for me. I always forget it's afternoon for everybody else. Um, so today, uh, I'm going to let our, our guests introduce themselves. I'm going to start with Chris Leach, the regional sales manager for Wild Goose Filling. Thanks, Candice. Yeah, I'm, I'm Chris Leach. I, uh, based up in New Hampshire, I cover the East Coast for Wild Goose now. Um, I, I got into the industry uh, sort of through the back door, through hospitality, I attended the Culinary Institute of America, worked in in all levels of restaurants, front of the house, back of the house. Um, And then in 2006, I shifted into the craft beer industry, working at a a brewery in upstate New York, Keegan Ales, um, and then ultimately into consultative sales. Um, And from there, it was with distribution, uh, direct with a producer making cider and a distillery. Uh, and now I'm a rep for Wild Goose for the last five and a half years selling capital equipment. Um, I'm also a certified Cicerone. Great. Uh, next, Brian Mollihan, owner of Ruby Street Brewing. Good morning, Candace. 
As stated, I'm Brian Mullahan. I founded Ruby Street Brewing in 2011 after years and years of home brewing and building and modifying a lot of brewing systems. Uh, we found out there was a demand for brewing equipment and we started manufacturing. You could say that it was a, kind of a hobby that more or less got out of control and became a business. Uh, <laughs> kind of a unique startup, I guess. But uh, today we're a family-owned business based out of Colorado and we specialize in building small-scale nano and pilot brewing equipment. Uh, pretty unique in that all of our equipment is built to order with really flexible designs and customizable options and that kind of stuff. Excellent. Uh, and last, we have Alex Smith, Midwest sales consultant, uh, apparently evolving into a new position uh, with ABS Commercial. Yeah, hi. So my name is Alex Smith. Um, as mentioned, I'm with ABS Commercial. Uh, kind of similar to the Ruby Street journey, uh, ABS Commercial was born out of a brewery. So we have a sister company, Raleigh Brewing Company in North Carolina. And uh, about a little over a decade ago, we were looking for equipment for that brewery and couldn't find anything that met the, the quality uh, and price constraints of, you know, an upstart craft brewery. So out of that need, ABS Commercial was born and we have been uh, brewing on our own equipment and designing, refining, growing for about the past decade all across the country and actually across across the world at this point so great okay let's get into it so alex i'm actually going to start with you so recently on our resource group contributor spotlight you reviewed several key criteria you would suggest that people think through and research when they are beginning to look for brewing equipment would you review some of those for our audience here yeah absolutely so um, in my mind, the primary uh, consideration is really the level of support and communication that you're getting. That, that's kind of a good first metric to look at. Um, you really want to make sure this is, a, this is a big endeavor. It's, it's a big equipment purchase. Um, you want to make sure that you're supported um, and make sure that those people have your back. Um, that they know what they're talking about. Um, again, one of the things that is kind of unique for us is that we own and operate a brewery, so we've been there before. Um, taking a look at quality and consistency is is another big one. Um, making sure that you talk to people who have used their equipment. We're blessed in the craft beer industry to... Um, basically be a very insular community and you can talk to your local brewers who are using that supplier's equipment, see what they think of the quality, see what they think of the support. Um, honestly, that's always going to be your best resource because any, any salesperson can kind of talk until they're blue in the face, but really what you want to see is how is that equipment held up? How is that support held up? That level of communication. Um, a lot of people also, um, you know, have that consideration of foreign made versus American made. Um, that's a lot of times both a budgetary and personal, um, you know, decision. Talk to your supplier. Uh, it's it's definitely important to make sure that they're forthcoming with where that equipment is coming from. Um, I have seen levels of quality from 
very poor to exceptional coming out of America, Europe, Asia. Um, so that kind of the the location of origin is not at all indicative of quality. Um, so again, you need to be able to read between the lines, um, you know, have that communication and ensure that communication is open. Um, for instance, for us, we do uh, make most of our equipment in China. However, we've been using a single factory for the duration of our company, which has enabled us to really drive high quality equipment, um, unique customization capabilities, that kind of stuff. Um, so casting kind of a wide net and making sure you're, you're doing your due diligence and making sure that company is willing to work for you. Because at the end of the day, it is, um, it, it should be more than just a vendor relationship. It really should be a partnership of both companies helping each other succeed. Gotcha. Anybody want to jump in on that? Should we move? Okay. So Alex, that's a, a great start for us. Uh, Brian, so when researching equipment, are there ways to evaluate companies in terms of higher quality of equipment? So thinking types of stainless, craftsmanship, reliability, turnaround for the order, customer service, parts, et cetera. And are there additional or different evaluation questions to include if you're considering an international manufacturer? Sure. It's always fun when you put Alex and I on a panel together because we have a lot of the really similar thoughts <laughs> on this whole topic. So I'll try and I'll try and add some extra content here. I, I think I'd like to start out by saying there's there's a lot of really good quality equipment on the market, but quality is not always synonymous with performance. They're clearly two different things. There's definitely some high quality equipment on the market that really doesn't perform well. One thing I always like to recommend is you ask, like Alex said, you ask any equipment manufacturer you're considering working with for a list of breweries that are using that equipment. And uh, at a bare minimum, you contact a few of those breweries and you ask some very pointed questions to just try and get a feel of what their experience is with that equipment. You know, questions like, do you wish, what do you wish was different about this equipment? If you were to order it again, you know, is the equipment easy to use? Is your equipment easy to clean? Um, do you feel like the equipment performs well in regards to efficiencies um, and efficiencies with both ingredients and workflow and process? Um, what question do you wish you had asked the manufacturer before you purchased your equipment is always kind of a fun one, just to kind of get some insight. Um, have you had any problems with the unit? If so, um, what was the response you got from the manufacturer and were they, were they, you know, forthcoming and helping you resolve those issues? Um, and then one other thing that I think is important to know is, you know, did, did the manufacturer meet their stated lead time for delivery on equipment? Because that's become a, a big issue, especially as of recent. And then, you know, on top of contacting him, if you can secure an invite to one of those breweries, that's gold or even better if you can get in on a, on a, you know, a day where they'll let you sit in on a brew or a packaging day or whatever type of equipment you're interested in. That's, uh, that's even better, you know, you know, and as far as vetting a customer by yourself, it really comes down to just asking a ton of questions. 
you're learning how responsive that company is to those questions. You know, like Alex mentioned, ask about the grades of stainless steel they use. Ask about the origins of the material. You don't need to be an expert on these topics or even know if the answers are 100% accurate, but you're going to get a feel for, you know, are they, are they, oh, we don't use this, but we use something that's just as good as that. Or, you know, if they're, if they're giving you kind of runarounds on things and just kind of read, read the language into the responses that they're giving you when you ask those questions. You know, one of my favorite things to say is just be mindful of how responsive a company is during the quoting and purchasing process. You know, if the customer service level you get when you're purchasing equipment is not absolutely stellar, it does not ever get better after they have your money. Um, it, it only it can only get worse at that point. You know, uh, you asked about international manufacturers. I think my rule of thumb with international manufacturing is really simple. Um, if you're looking at equipment from international manufacturers, if it has moving parts, don't. Um, really as simple as that. I think things like fermenters and tanks, you can certainly buy internationally and be pretty safe with. It's again, you're dealing with, uh, you know, we have very good global communication now. So when you're dealing with those manufacturers, same thing applies with international manufacturers. Can you give me a list of breweries in the United States that are using your equipment that I could contact, you know, and go go forward with it like that? But like I said, that's stuff without moving parts. I think you're pretty safe on that. When it comes to, you know, brew houses, mills, packaging equipment, anything that has controls, motors, pumps, moving parts, um, I would really be a huge proponent of buying anything like that from a US-based company. Those types of machines are going to need support. They are going to need parts and you're going to need some local help to help you out with those. And uh, you know, you can't you can't be down on a brew day. So I don't know if anybody has anything to add there. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Alex. Um yeah, just a couple things to touch on there. Going direct to China is definitely a, um, it, it can be a viable solution. The one thing to keep in mind is, uh, A, pictures of what they say they're selling you may not line up with what actually comes in the container. Um, and especially if you're doing just a one-time purchase, a lot of times those factories know that and there isn't a whole lot of accountability. So corners can easily be cut um, and you don't necessarily have any recourse. You know, you've already bought the equipment, they have your money. Um, so thinking about things like warranty and, and that domestic support is really important. And just to drill down further on, especially anything with moving parts, if a pump goes down and you can't get that gasket for six weeks, you know, that's, you're, you're kind of dead in the water. And especially on the packaging side, we actually did experiment with bringing some canning lines over and they are basically scrap at this point. Um, and that's after having representatives from the factory come and try to rebuild it on site a number of times. Um, so yeah, the more moving parts, the more you want support. And, and honestly, that support domestically is worth worth paying for. Laura? Um, do you have trouble with, or is there a possibility to have 
um, access to parts and pieces like replacement parts or gaskets or things if you purchase internationally? Is it possible that some of the domestic companies can be able to furnish parts and things like that for internationally purchased products? Um, yeah. I, I guess I would say that unless they have a heavy U.S. presence, then not really. Mm -hmm. Typically not. And typically you're in a situation if those parts are even available, your lead times are not going to work out for your business and getting those parts. Yeah. And there's also just a huge variety there. It's a huge variety of very subtle differences. Um, so for instance, we were doing research on spunding valves and we brought in eight different spunding valves and not a single one had the same like gasket assembly. Um, so if you have a vendor that changes factories every time they purchase a tank based on who's cheaper, you could be a couple millimeters off here and there. And then you're looking at like highly custom gaskets. You don't even know how to measure them. Um, Brewerygaskets.com has a pretty good inventory, but again, you're kind of just creating headache for yourself and that kind of stuff routine maintenance should be routine it shouldn't be catastrophic and it shouldn't be something that you know takes you hours and hours to to figure out and i'll throw in from the legal standpoint trying to hold an international company accountable um, generally requires hiring an attorney in that country and so it's definitely a lot more expensive and difficult uh if, if you can even get uh, a resolution, so. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to Chris. Is packaging equipment similar to brewing equipment in these ways? And what criteria would you list for various kinds of packaging equipment shopping? Yeah, the, <clears throat> these guys teed, teed up my answer really nicely and, and a lot of what they said applies to packaging. Um, when you think about starting a brewery and then running a brewery, there's going to be a ton of things that don't go according to plan. Um, construction being a big part of that. And, and then once you're up and running, there's, you know, staffing issues, there's, you know, delivery of ingredient issues and timing. There's, you're constantly going to be met every day with things that aren't going the way you want them to be. So when you think about purchasing equipment, try to eliminate some of those you know, potential headaches of sourcing parts from overseas or from buying from a vendor that may not be there in a year. Um, you know, everything these guys said is is so true in that category that, uh, and I love that, Alex, I think you said it, it, routine maintenance should be routine. And that's, that's such a good point. When you think about packaging, it's going to be one of the more complex systems in your brewery as far as moving parts go and components to a single piece of equipment. Um, so for, you know, I'll just reiterate what they said, when you're thinking about buying a packaging line, um, the, the upfront cost is only part of the entire cost of owning this piece of equipment. You're gonna, there's gonna be a lot of replacement parts. There's gonna be downtime when you come in um, and the machine's not running well. Um, there could be downtime if you bought from a manufacturer that can't get you parts quickly. When you think about those, lifelong costs, those are going to far outweigh any savings you made up front by going with a, a cheaper, either international or domestic manufacturer. Um, when, you, when you get into shopping for any equipment, it's really important to figure out what's important to you. 
uh, it's very common for customers to come to me and want to be able to distill down five quotes into a spreadsheet of you know speed, price, whatever feature they are shopping, you know, in a few different columns to make it an easy uh, black and white decision for themselves. And it's not, it's never going to be that easy. So when, when you're trying to force vendors to kind of give you the answers that are trying to fit into your spreadsheet, it becomes somewhat convoluted and becomes difficult to, to shop that way. So figure out what's important to you. Um, is customer service important to you? How important? Is that the most important thing? Um, and with customer service, can what these guys had said, find customers that they already have to back up any claims that the salesman makes. Um, is dissolved oxygen pickup important to you? Um, there's That's a topic that we could go pretty deep on that's probably not meant for this podcast, but uh, you know, anybody that makes claims of proven dissolved oxygen pickup on a packaging line is it, it's a very deceitful uh, claim to make because there's so much that goes into it. But is that important to you? Then find customers that are using that equipment that are using an oxygen meter to read their cans or bottles daily to tell you what's what's achievable on this line. Um, what about reliability? Again, downtime is is really costly. So how reliable is this machine? How often are you down? Um, this one's kind of hard to measure because you're just getting you're getting uh, anecdotal evidence from people. But if you talk to enough people on a few different vendors, you start to hear the same things over and over, and you can start getting a gut feeling on how reliable equipment is. Go into probrewer.com and just searching the forums, you know, typing in keywords of vendor names is is also helpful for getting people's opinions. Uh, durability, which is similar to reliability, but you know how tough is this machine um, and how long is it going to last? Uh, are you using a mobile canner? What equipment is your mobile canner using? They are probably the roughest with any piece of equipment, uh, you know, rougher than any other business in the brewing industry. So if their machine shows up uh, and it's always running or running most of the time, and if it goes down, if it's a quick fix, I think that should tell you something as well. Um Customer support, I already touched on, but I'll, I'll touch on it again. Is you know, what's the reputation like for for that 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 company? And again, going on forums or talking to other customers to really get a sense. Um, Alex said earlier that you know salespeople can talk your ear off, and and it's true. You know, salespeople are it's their job to try to present you with the best uh, details to get you to choose their company. Um, but if if you can't get a word in edgewise with your salesperson, uh, that's an issue. Salespeople should be asking you questions to figure out what your situation is uh, so they can help guide you into what in their portfolio, if anything, is going to be a good fit. Um, those are kind of high level getting into getting into the shopping of really any equipment. I would say for canning lines specifically, it's, you know, people want to know what sort of dissolved oxygen pickup you get from a canning line. That's really complex. Uh, talk with each vendor about it and, and hear their answers. I think Brian had mentioned it earlier, just get a feel for their understanding of what their machine can do for dissolved oxygen pickup specifically. Um, and then how much control over the filling process and seaming process do you have? Uh, there's, you know, getting foam on the top of your container before you put a lid on it is really critical for picking up low oxygen. How many ways can you do that? Um, 
because not if you're not getting enough foam, it's not always the same reason why you're not getting enough foam. So to have you know, three, four, five, six different ways to generate foam is important. And that all comes down to how much control does the operator have to see what's going on and then make a change on the machine. I think those are the, probably the top ones for me. I'll stop there. Gotcha. Well, I'm going to come back to you on mobile canning in a little bit. Um, Brian, so let's switch a little bit. In terms of capacity, do you have some fundamental guidance for how big is too big or how small is too small for startup equipment? Wow. That's that's probably the toughest question there is to answer. Is in the brewing world, there are so many different business models and industries. And, you know, are you a tap room only? Are you production? Are you are, are you a tap room with a couple of your own beers on tap? <laughs> so a lot, a lot of different answers. Um, I guess the uh, the thing that needs to be said is you almost never hear anybody say that they purchased, they wish they purchased a smaller system. Um, it's always quite the opposite. They wish they went larger. Okay, but is that because maybe we're not talking to the people who went out of business? Just just asking. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. I feel like we, uh, through, through different events, we get to talk to a whole lot of people and like I said, you, we typically hear I could have I could have gone bigger, so I think that's that's kind of a common theme. Um, you know, um, for my company, I mean, we build one barrel systems, so I market my equipment strictly as pilot batch equipment. Um, we do get a surprising amount of these systems that are sold as small production equipment, especially to breweries that are starting up. Um, you know, very cash strapped or you know, their, their plan is organic growth or their proof of concept or whatever it may be starting out. You know, if, if I know nothing about your business and I had to tell you, you know, what a one size fits all approach should be for you to buy a brewery, I would say buy a 15 barrel brewery and a one barrel pilot system. Um, it's it's kind of just a cookie cutter approach. And We've seen, I think we've seen good success with that type of arrangement, a 15 and a one, because that that larger system will keep your tap room flowing with, you know, brewing one to two days a week. You're not burning yourself out. And then if you have a small pilot system, you can really kind of just push the envelope on developing recipes, trying things that are, you know, maybe expensive to try in a, in a small batch, very cost effectively, you know. Too small of a brewing system is going to lead to burnout at some point in your business because you're just going to be brewing all the time. As a home brewer coming into opening a brewery, that may sound like a dream, but it's it, we've seen it many, many times. And I think it's kind of an everything gets old approach at some point. You know, it, a lot of times it's going to come down to what you can reasonably fit in your leased or purchased building. You know, if you're in a limited small space, um, your fermentation space is going to become probably more important than your brew house size at some point. Um, you know, I think going back to talking to manufacturers, I think another good question you could always ask a manufacturer is, what is the minimum batch size I can brew on this equipment? Because you can always buy bigger equipment. And if you can brew half size batches on it, you know, you've got that room to grow without without having to reinvent your brewery. So that's kind of what I have on that. Gotcha. Yeah, I think that, sorry. Go ahead, Alex. And then we'll so get Lauren. 
those are all good good points the the two things that really jumped out to me is yeah a a lot of this you know the bigger equipment you should be able to do half batches um and that is a good question to ask because for us you know for instance usually the limiting factors on a kettle you can split steam jackets so you can do you know one-third two-third and full size batches on the same system and it's important to also look into pricing because a 10 barrel brew house is not half the cost of a 20 barrel it's usually a you know maybe 25 to 30 percent less um so it does come down to what fits your budget what fits your space but yeah general rule of thumb go as big as you think you can you can always start small on that bigger system and scale up um the other kind of major trend that we've seen is pre-covid everything was trending smaller and smaller so we were getting a lot more requests for three barrel five barrel brew houses because the the real kind of rock star concept at the time was like just be the neighborhood bar um you know, which is great because if you're selling everything over your bar, it's, that's how you maximize your margins. However, when bars were forced to close, people were having to pivot into packaging and trying to package on a three barrel brew house is brutal and not very cost effective. So in terms of building in some kind of flexibility and sustainability, again, there is no one size fits all, but go as big as you can and, you know, maybe even bigger than you think you should. Bet on your success. Chris? One thing I, I would add to, and I, I know it's covered in some of the earlier episodes of this podcast, um, is to uh, figure out what your uh, like viable business model volume is. I talked to a lot of folks that uh, are getting, trying to get in a package to Alex's point, like the three barrel system folks that they I've heard a few times saying things to the effect of like, I need to grow and increase my brew house size and produce more beer so I can start paying myself or start making money. It seems like there's a, a size that uh, may seem nice uh, for whatever reason, being that that local brew pub or just a small system. It's attractive because it's low capital cost to get into it, but as you're running it, can you produce enough beer on that system to, to achieve your goals and, and make the revenue that you need to? Yeah, Chris, that's a great point. And that's something we deal with often is you should really be scrutinizing why you're choosing a specific brew house size, because I would say a majority of our customers come to the table, like I'm looking for a seven barrel brew house. Why? Like how much are you looking to produce? And that production hasn't been considered yet. A, a lot of times it's like the guy down the street has a seven barrel, he seems successful. You, the brew house is a calculation based on production. I, you know, if you wanna make 500 barrels a year, I can show you what a three, five and 10 barrel brew house looks like. And a lot of times the cheapest one is in the middle it's not the smallest system when you consider you know production how many turns do i have to do on that system what's my labor cost how many additional fermenters do i have to buy 
So I would say that's something you really want to work backwards. How much volume do you want to make? And then we can figure out what size brew house is going to be the right fit. Laura? Yeah, I could add. Okay, oh. Laura. <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. It's a good topic. It's a good topic. Oh. <laughs> Have at it. Uh, you know, as far as expansion goes, and, and I'm on the packaging side, but again, talking to a lot of breweries uh, that are usually looking at a packaging line because they're expanding it in some way, uh, if your space allows to start whatever system you decide on, the brew house size, if it's seven barrel or 15 barrel, getting matching fermenters and brights uh, for that size, but knowing you've got the footprint for, or you can replace those same ones with double batch tanks. And that could be a means of of expanding and double batching into to, you know, larger tanks. So that's, that's where I was going. Um, what just a general idea of what do you think about having, you know, finding a, a brew house size of a certain capacity, but, but purchasing fermenters that'll allow a double, double batch or allow you to expand with larger fermenters as you're ready for them, instead of having the larger brew house, having larger fermenters. What, what do you feel about that? Anybody? I would I would say that it's it's a smart plan if you have the space. I mean, double batch fermenters are not double the cost of the same size fermenter, so it's very cost effective up front. Um, like I mentioned before, your fermentation space at some point becomes more critical than your brew house size. You can double batch into a fermenter that's double the size on the same day. So I think uh, and there's and there's things like that that you can upsize on the front end, just with growth in mind, you know, you can always upsize hot liquor tanks. You can upsize your fermentation. You can upsize your glycol unit, you know, things that you, you go into it. I, I think Alex said it, you know, plan for success. Um, yeah. A lot of the times we'll see customers too, especially if you have a tight space where it's like, I can only fit five fermenters in here. Um, when you put those five fermenters in, space them out so that if you need to, you can swap them out with double sized fermenters. So right now, maybe I only have sevens, but you know, as I grow, I can sell off a seven barrel, bring in a fifteen, you know, effectively double double that volume with the footprint. Um, the last thing I would say on those double size is check your ceiling height, because we have run into situations where people have low ceilings. And they can't fit a 30 barrel, but they can fit a 20 barrel. So in that instance, it may actually make more sense for you to go with a 10 barrel brew house versus 15, because you can actually double double batch, you know, and grow that way, um, rather than being limited to just 15 barrels at a time. Chris? I've got a question for Brian and Alex. With, in regards to double batching, would there is there any consideration on the brew house configuration if you know that if I guess if the plan is to be successful enough to then double batch is it would it be wise to get you know a multi like a three vessel or four vessel brew house to make those double brew days shorter or I guess I know nothing about that side of it, it um, could you talk about that my rule of thumb is a standard two vessel and when I say two vessel that's mash water and kettle whirlpool is if it's well designed that should be more than sufficient if even if you're planning on doing like regular double batch brew days so we've we've got a two vessel system at our facility it's a 20 barrel we can do double brew days 
in about 10 to 11 hours. So that's two turns. Um, you know, that's a long day for someone, but usually you'll have two brewers and you do an overlapping middle shift. Each additional vessel you add may save you 20 to 30 minutes in the process, but you've also added another vessel that you have to clean. So there's also that metric, like I've added another 20 minute cleaning cycle. Um, so in my mind, if you start getting into triple batching, then yeah, you may want a third vessel. If you get into, you know, I'm doing four turns a day, then you might want a three or four vessel. Um, but in general, I think you're, you're better served, you know, that standard two vessel is, is very easy to do double batch. Um, the exception there being some people will add a dedicated whirlpool because that does make that like late hopping pro that's more a matter of like process rather than efficiency. Um, cause you can kind of pull the wort down a little bit going into that separate whirlpool, um, get some better hop extraction, that kind of thing. Um, but that's just kind of my, I think a lot of times people are like, I want to brew all the time. So I need a three vessel and you can, I mean, pretty efficiently wear out a, a two vessel system. And that's usually what people are, are doing is, you know, single or double batching. I guess, I guess to just dovetail into that, you know, if somebody comes to me and says, we're definitely going to be double batching every day. We, we talk about some simple things that just add efficiency. So you can overlap those two batches a little bit on the small scale side. Um, you know, there's things like adding an on-demand hot water heater. So you have hot water up front. You're not waiting for a hot liquor tank to heat. That'll shorten your overall brew day. Um, like Alex mentioned, sometimes we do a wort receiver or a dedicated whirlpool so that they can start running off a second batch from a mash while they're boiling their first. Anything you can get that's significantly overlaps the first batch and second batch is going to make that double batch day a whole lot more reasonable. Awesome. Okay, I'm going to add one last thing and we're going to have to move on because we're going to run out of time. Um, back to what Alex mentioned earlier about, you know, asking people what size and they're like seven barrel because that's what the guy down the street has. Um, William Camacho, who was on one of the earlier podcasts, um, spoke to one of my business planning classes. And the calculation is basically take, you know, so let's say you wanted to do seven barrel. You're thinking a seven barrel system. Okay. How much square footage do you need for a seven barrel system? And what is that going for in your locality? So how much is your rent going to run basically? And then if you brew 24 seven, how much beer can you make? And then what, you know, what is beer selling for again in your locality? And so you can kind of run the numbers. And then of course you do have to factor in all your other costs and expenses, but you can kind of start to see, is it sustainable? Can I make enough beer if I brew all the time to cover my expenses? Um, and if anyone's interested, um, I have a Excel spreadsheet that can assist with uh, some of that. If uh, feel free to email the uh, shoot an email to startabrew.com and can get I can get that out to you at least. But um, so on that note, we're going to take a short break for a sponsor and then come back in a couple of minutes. Support for this episode comes from Wild Goose Filling. 
pioneers in craft filling, wild goose filling designs, and builds precision canning and bottling lines that expand to faster speeds to meet the unique needs of craft brewers. Engineered for reliability and backed by local customer service worldwide, Wild Goose systems protect beverage flavor and maximize shelf life so consumers can enjoy your beer exactly as it was crafted. To learn more about Wild Goose Filling's solutions for your brewery's unique needs, visit www.wildgoosefilling.com. Okay, so um, I want to go back to the mobile canning, Chris. Um, how do you suggest brewers evaluate the option of hiring a mobile canning company versus getting a canning line of their own? Yeah, this is a this is a great question. You may have to do the hand wave at some point if I'm if I'm going too long on this, but uh, this is something that that we talk about every day with with customers. And the the name of the podcast is Start a Brewery. So I'm going to answer this in the uh, as if it's a you know startup brewery that hasn't opened yet and how they should evaluate it. Um, think about how much you plan to put into kegs versus package first. Um, and that's that can be difficult to do before you open to know what your demand is going to be on either side. But if you have projections, uh, that's a good place to start. What you can do with those projections is look at the mobile canners minimums um, and then figure out what is it going to take to meet that minimum and if that is going to work for you. Uh, some some of the considerations with how to meet that minimum. Um, oftentimes it's, you know, 15, 20 barrel minimums for them to come out and package for you. If you have a, a five, uh, seven, 10 barrel system, even a 20 barrel system, if you're not going to be packaging the entire tank, you'll have to have a few different products, a few different beers ready to go uh, on the day that that mobile canner arrives. In order to have you know three, four, five different products ready to go when that mobile canner arrives, that means you know finished fermentation, finish any sort of rest, uh, fully carbonated, and ready to package that day. Um, so to get to that point, if you look even further back, it's you start by brewing a ton within a week or two um, to get everything into fermenters and fermenting, and then. Uh, you know, transferring everything, if you're filtering, filtering everything, getting everything carbonated. Every week is like a fire drill of getting four or five different uh, beers through your system to finish at the same time. And usually what happens is you the first one to be finished is carbonated, ready to go. Um, and then you've got some that kind of are perfectly right on for the day that you're going to be canning, they finish just right on time. And then you have some that you wish you had a little bit more time on. Um, so you've got tanks that could be turned uh, more frequently than they are. Um, and we talked a little bit about how much can you brew. That's going to hold up if you're brewing at capacity, how much beer you can produce in a year. And then you're, you know, on the other side of it, you're sending stuff out in the market that you wish you just had a little bit more time on to settle out or, or to do whatever. So, by having your own small packaging line on the, the small below mobile canner minimum side can be useful in creating a really uh, nice rhythm of brewing, fermenting, carbonating, packaging. And you know, every week you might brew once, you might transfer once, you might carbonate once and can once, and then you get this, this nice flow. You also are able to package much smaller amounts. Um, if you're trying to meet a minimum, you have to put a lot more beer in a cans than maybe you would want to. Um, and you'd end up with inventory that's getting a little bit longer than you'd like. Um, 
And then you also get a, a much narrower scope or a much narrower uh, selection of products that you put out, different beers you put out. And you're like, I have to do my IPA because that's selling like crazy. I Somebody told me the other day that their peanut butter stout's their biggest seller. So they're like, we're always packaging that. And, you know, we get people to come to the tap room that are like, I don't like peanut butter stout. And that's all that's in this cooler. So I'm not buying any beer. Uh, whereas if you have a, a smaller packaging line and you can do 10, 20 cases at a time, you can do a little bit of everything that you brew. And when you have a little bit of everything you brew in the cooler, a customer can walk up to that cooler and buy one of each if they want to. If your cooler has two different products in it, they'll probably just buy two different four packs or six packs and, and call it there. So uh, that's one thing to consider on the smaller side. Um, on the, I guess on the bigger side is when cost starts to become something that you might really want to look at. If I would say it's probably customers that, that start reaching out to us are packaging two times a month with a mobile canner, at least like 30 barrels at a time. And, and that's roughly the, the service cost for the mobile canner becomes close to what a monthly loan payment would be on packaging equipment. That's a good gut check. There's a there's a lot more cost involved with owning your own equipment. You know, if you think about a mobile canner, they're doing all the maintenance. Uh, you know, you don't have to worry about those headaches of owning equipment. So it's not quite equal, but it's at least a good gut check. You know, there's there's folks that reach out to me that say that they're paying fifteen thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars a month in mobile canning service fees. That's not even cans, uh, labor, anything. That is just the service fee. Those are a bit extreme. Those are folks that are, you know, love using mobile canning and they held on for a long time. But depending on your equipment, your equipment costs could be like five or six thousand a month. And if you go from twenty thousand a month to five or six thousand a month, uh, there could be huge savings there, even accounting for those additional costs of ownership. Um, you know, some of the benefits of using mobile upfront when you're starting a brewery, it's it's very common for cost overruns in construction, for equipment price increases. Uh, all kinds of unexpected, you have to put an elevator in to meet, you know, handicap accessibility or automatic doors, you know, these $10,000 things you didn't plan for keep popping up. Um, so it, it's great to have the safety net of mobile canning, even if you have to deal with the minimum issue or you have to pay more per run than you would have on an equipment loan. If you simply run out of money by the end of your project, it's hard to, there's no mobile brew house company, you know, so you have to buy your brew house. It, it's nice to have mobile for those reasons of just getting started with packaging. Um, it's also good if you start with mobile canning um, and you're a brand new brewery or heavily leveraged and it's hard to find a bank to give you money. It's good if you start with mobile canning, you can go to a bank and say, I'm paying this mobile canner $10,000 a month in service fees. Here are my sales. Here's how they've grown in the last year since I've been using mobile canning. It's it, it's an expense you're already paying for. So it's it's helpful to get funds to buy your packaging line when, you, when you're already doing it and paying somebody else. I'll pause there. <laughs> that was a lot and it was awesome. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's definitely, I, I hear lots of questions about it. Um, myself, which is funny, I guess, because I get to review the contracts. Um, but I do want to switch over and I'm actually going to direct this question at both Alex and Brian, and then Chris, eventually you as well, because I think this uh, hits all of you, which is the topic of used brewing equipment. 
And what are your thoughts uh, about buying used? Uh, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Um, Brian, you want to start? Yeah, yeah. Back to the moving parts thing, I think. <laughs> I wouldn't buy anything that has moving parts used. <laughs> I have simple rules, I guess. Um, if you're going to buy used equipment, you're going to have to be a very engaged, handy person in your brewery. I mean, you can do it. You can make it work. But you're going to have a lot of stuff that's somewhat compatible. I think uh, one piece of advice I typically give people if they're buying used equipment, reach out to the manufacturer of that equipment. I think that often doesn't happen. A lot of times people will call me and say, hey, I'm looking at some used equipment that's yours. What can you tell me about it? And I can say, okay, this is what it is. This is when it's sold. These are features we've upgraded. And since that system was sold, and I can kind of give you a little bit of my gut feeling about how well that system has been taken care of based on my experience with that customer during the ownership period. So that's that's kind of a critical piece is just start with the manufacturer. Also, don't assume that it's a good deal just because it's used. We have, unfortunately, we've seen people pay more for used equipment than they ultimately would have paid for new equipment, especially by the time they, you know, put in the, they find the missing parts on that used equipment. Oh, it needs a control panel. Oh, it needs a heat exchanger. Oh, it needs this. It needs that. You know, I'm like, you could have just bought a new system. So something always to consider. Yeah, I, I would agree with all of those points. Um a lot of times what I've found is outside of, you know, we talked in previously, like somebody selling a, a seven barrel to get a 15 barrel with seller tanks. I think it, it, again, no moving parts. It's a little, little better. Keep in mind, you're probably like most manufacturers do not transfer uh, warranties. So, and I have seen customers who, do not clean or passivate tanks and have, you know, basically rotted tanks out from the inside that can happen with 304 and 316. Um, also just a lot of times when equipment, especially if it's a brew house or something is being sold used, there's typically a reason it's being sold, right? Either, you know, it's a company that's going out of business, which, oftentimes may mean they haven't had either consistency of, of brewers and people maintaining that equipment. That equipment's been sitting for a long time, um, you know, maybe not treated well. Stuff like, yeah, pumps, pump seals, all of that can be really hard to source if, especially if they're old. Um, controls is a huge one. A lot of um, European and Asian equipment that comes with controls, even if it's like Siemens controls. Siemens uses different parts for US, Europe, and Asia. So the ability of getting support even on the hardware on controls can be really difficult. Um, all of those are just kind of things to look out for. But to Brian's point, Definitely reach out to the manufacturer. Um, I mean, for us, we're always happy to, you know, convey what information we have. Um, 
that can be a good indicator of like how well the equipment was treated. You also don't know, like we've had some where we've developed highly custom equipments for say cold brew coffee production, and then it gets sold used as a brew house. And, you know, the customer comes back, it's like, I bought this thing. And we're like, okay, well that's, you know, it looks like a brew house, but it really wasn't designed to make beer. Um, so yeah, very early first step, talk to the manufacturer and see what it is you're actually buying. Gotcha. Chris, you want to jump in? Yeah, I'll add just a, a couple things. Um, going back to what I said earlier about when you're starting a brewery, there's already going to be so many things you don't expect that are going to pop up. Uh, and equipment shouldn't be one of those things that you get it in and you have to install it yourself uh, in your missing parts. You don't even know what parts you're missing. It's a, you know, a massive headache that I've seen a lot of brewers go through that is, that's just unnecessary. When you think about the cost of your time and what you could be doing otherwise with that time of, you know, getting your business off the ground and running it, that, you know, put a dollar figure on that and, you know, add it to whatever used equipment you're looking at and say, well, you know, geez, this is probably pretty close to what new equipment would look like. Warranty is really critical. I know that was covered already. Uh, earlier in the call, I talked about durability, reliability of equipment. Um, don't assume that carries into used equipment uh, to Brian's point. And I think Alex made the point too. If it's not well-maintained, if you're not following the, the maintenance schedule, uh, that kind of goes out the window. So just because you, you see a brand name that you know and trust on the used market, really do some due diligence to be sure it's it's still in good shape. Chris, do you guys <laughs> offer rebuild services or like recommissioning services or anything like that? Was that for me, Alex? Do you guys, like if somebody buys a, a used line, are they able to purchase like a, you know, a rebuild either a rebuild kit for them to do it or to pay for a text time to come out. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Thanks for teeing that up. Uh, that's a good point where when you buy new equipment, at least from us, you get lifelong support forever at no cost. When you buy used equipment, it, that's no longer the case. You have to pay for you know an annual fee to have us help you troubleshoot the machine. Mm -hmm. um, but you certainly can hire us for that over the phone and email support, but uh, and if you want us to come out, install it, train you how to use it, it's all there for a fee, um, which you should be considering if you add all those things back in, is this close to the cost of a new equipment to just buy it new? Awesome. I want to throw in from the legal perspective, when you buy something as is, that literally means that you get it as is. And, you know, even if you... Um, you know, the party you're buying from, you know, does have some uh, warranties or guarantees in there. Um, once you have the equipment and they have your money, the only way to enforce those is to, if you have to, if they won't do anything, is to sue them, which is just going to cost you more money. So um, be very careful uh, from the legal aspect on those kind of contracts as well. So we are about to run out of time. So I'm going to throw it back to the, our three experts for some final words of wisdom. And then uh, we're going to end this one. And I feel like we didn't get to half of what I wanted to ask about, but this has been great. So um, Alex, final words. Um, I mean, I think the, the through line with what we're talking about is when you're looking at equipment, 
use vendors of that equipment and multiple vendors of that equipment as a resource. Um, you know, a really quick way to vet is like, are these people willing to, to just have an open conversation with you? Um, even when it comes to things like comparing quotes, are they willing to sit down and walk you through? I know, you know, for, for brew house quotes, for instance, all competitors kind of structure them differently. It can be hard to decipher, you know, what's included, what isn't. And if a vendor isn't willing to sit down and like really walk through that with you, that's kind of an early red flag. Um, consider where your equipment's coming from, be it used, be it from China, be it from Europe. Um, I think one thing we kind of touched on and touched around is like, I, I am a strong proponent of you or at least someone on your team, if you are owning and operating a brewery, needs to be mechanically inclined. Um, the law of entropy is accelerated in a brewery setting. It's not a question of if things are going to break, it's when. Um, you know, so having a warranty on your equipment is a huge, you know, basically insurance policy. Um, but also having someone who can do that routine maintenance, upkeep, um, get ahead of stuff. And if something does go down, can at least get it limping along, you know, until you can get the fix in place. Those are all, all things that are just going to give you peace of mind. Um, again, there's a lot of moving parts and opening a brewery and a lot of hidden expenses. So just be diligent and make sure you know what you're getting, what's included, um, so you can compare apples to apples there. Awesome. Brian? Yeah. I, well, I, I sell pilot breweries, so I guess my final words of wisdom would be why you should own a pilot brewery, right? <laughs> um, I, I, like to, I like to tell people that, you know, a pilot brewery is an excellent marketing tool for your, for your business. Um, they're perfect for collabs. They're perfect for, you know, getting the variety into your tap room that is really a key to your business. You know, for me personally, when I visit a brewery, I want to try something I've never had before. And having a small system that you can experiment um, very cost effectively on is, is a great way to do that. It's also an awesome way to get your team engaged. Um, I've been in breweries where the beer tender says, hey, there's a beer on tap here that I brewed myself, you know. That's awesome. Hey, I'm going to try that beer every time when when that beer tender is pushing that. So you definitely it's your social media opportunity. It's, it's great for marketing. It's how equipment fits into marketing, I guess. Awesome. And Chris. I'm going to reiterate the point I made earlier about figuring out what's important to you with whatever you're buying and, and as it relates to packaging equipment. Um, customer service is it is the upfront price the most important thing for you uh, it, if that is then it is and that's okay but knowing going into any conversation with vendors what those important things are and really pushing the vendor to give you answers that you feel are sufficient to answer or to, to satisfy that important topic uh, a big one in the packaging side is dissolved oxygen pickup um, and I would one of the things I hear often is, you know, DO is the most important thing to me, DO pickup. And I'll follow that up with a, you know, do you have a DO meter to, to measure dissolved oxygen? It's like, no, I can't. It's too expensive. I would say be really critical. If, if you're saying that's really important to you, 
that should be on your list of things to get. You know, where else can you trim? Uh, or say to yourself, it's not that important to me. I think, you know, there's a lot of breweries out there that brew in a way that's best practice and they make pretty good beer. So, so be it. If that's what is, you know, but just be true to yourself. Don't follow what you think should be important to you. Figure out what's actually important to you. Uh, write that down and then use that list as you're talking to vendors. Alex said something that was uh, that I really liked about, you know, going through quotes because they're all different. Um, I, I would also add to that, that if a company sends you a blanket general quote after your first inquiry without having a conversation with you, I would, that would be a red flag to me. You know, how do, how do you or they know that that quote is going to fit what your needs are? Perhaps they're sending you a quote that gives you the lowest, you know, the smallest cost to it, but it doesn't include the things that you know you're going to need. So when you're comparing that to other quotes, uh, it's, it's not going to be apples to apples. So, uh, that, those would be the couple of things I would say. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. All right. I'll take the, I'll take the baton there. Um, I think my takeaway from this particular session is that we need a part two. So after we hit end on this, we're going to try to talk our guests into coming back again to get into all the other questions we wanted to ask. Um, so for, day, for today, uh, a big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us now and in the future for episode 12, Equipment and Infrastructure of the Started Brewery podcast. We invite you to join us for our next episode, 13, continuing forward with your business plan, this time delving into the question of contract brewing and alternating proprietorships. This will be released before anyone should actually be awake on Tuesday, June 20th. We have a final wrap-up word from our sponsor. Support for this episode comes from Wild Goose Filling, featuring the new generation of their compact professional canning system, Gosling 2.0, with an all-new user interface and integrated touchscreen. Wild Goose's latest Gosling 2.0 canning line builds upon the Wild Goose reputation with patented filling technology that delivers the same consistency as higher speed wild goose systems. Ready to package beer, coffee, kombucha, wine, and anything in between, Gosling 2.0 is the next generation of fully automated canning in one sleek, simple system. To learn more about Gosling 2.0, Wild Goose's latest Fusion 2.0 counter pressure atmospheric canning system, or other filling solutions for your brewery's unique needs, visit www wildgoosefilling.com. While you're anticipating the release of our next episode, feel free to visit the Started Brewery website at startedbrewery.com, a free resource for those who are looking to open or grow their breweries. Be sure to look through the task lists offered for each stage of the process, plan, act, open, and grow, at the educational resources and at the offerings from our savvy contributors in our growing library. You can also sign up for an occasional electronic update with a new Starter Brewery contributor list, content, events, and more great information on the contact page of the website. We also encourage you to explore the All About Beer website at allaboutbeer.com and perhaps pop in to enjoy one of their excellent podcasts as well. In the meantime, this has been Laura Lodge and Candace Moon wishing you a terrific day and thanking you once again for joining us on our podcast journey to start a brewery. <laughs>